Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. This week I interview Mina Nada from Zumo. Zumo are one of the largest providers of e-bike rentals to all of the largest food delivery platforms globally. When we last talked to Mina in episode number 66, when they were still called Bolt Bikes, they were just heading into the pandemic and it was a very uncertain time. Well, it's no longer uncertain. Mina and the team have pulled off an insane amount of growth since then, growing to 300 employees globally and launching the US and Europe, all while Mina has been largely locked down in Australia due to COVID. It's an amazing interview. I really, really enjoyed talking to Mina, and he is a phenomenal operator. I really hope that you enjoy this as much as I did, and let us know what you think on Twitter. Let's go. All right, and welcome back to Micromobility. I have with us today Mina Nada. How are you today, Mina? I'm very well, thank you. How's it going? It's really well. We were just jamming before this and we realized that the last time we would properly caught up was 24th of March in 2020, which was right on the beginning of lockdowns and the start of COVID. So I am super fascinated because there's been a fair amount that's happened since then with what was Bolt Bikes and has become Zumo. And it's been one of these juggernauts that I've watched from afar. So I'm really looking forward to unpacking where things are at. So probably the best way to do this, Mina, is do you want to just take people through? Like we have an episode we've done with you already. For folks who are like coming to this completely fresh, completely new, take us through what is Zumo, how long you've been around, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, certainly. So Zumo started as a side hustle in 2017. Between 2017 and 2018, me and my co-founder had a simple business leasing out third-party electric bikes to food delivery couriers. And our perspective was that I'd been a GM at Deliveroo here in Australia and could see that the guys who were the fastest delivery were on e-bikes. But yeah. you know, e-bikes weren't really fit for purpose. They were doing serious mileage on them and needed constant servicing. And, you know, the thing with food delivery guys, the average tenure for one of them is typically like less than six months. And so it doesn't make sense for them to spend a lot of money to, to buy a vehicle. So we came up with this, you know, e-bike as a service solution for them and, you know, started to put our own money into buying what we thought, you know, the best bikes that we could find at the time, with the biggest batteries and lowest maintenance. And in parallel, I, I started working at Mobike, which is one of the earliest dockless bike sharing companies. And I moved to Singapore and with them was managing the APAC business, you know, 100,000 odd bikes across the world. And they were ultimately acquired by Meituan, Chinese food delivery company, actually, that wanted to focus on the Chinese market. So early 2019, there was obviously a lot of excitement about micro-mobility and, and a lot of investment going into Bird and Lime and, and dockless shared bikes and scooters. And we had the view that mobility can be split broadly into you know, consumer and commercial. If you look out on the street, you know, half the vehicles are moving people, half the vehicles are moving things. And micromobility has a huge role to play, we think, in logistics and, and moving things, not just moving people. And so that was the premise of Zumo or Bolt Bikes as it was back then. And I flew over to remember kind of thinking if it was worth spending the money to kind of fly over to Richmond, just outside San Francisco, to attend this micromobility conference for the first time and kind of meet other people in the space in January 2019 and, and end up meeting our, our kind of seed round investors over there, Maneve Mobility, who kind of are early stage mobility investors. And they backed us despite being kind of US slash Israeli outfit and us being an Australian outfit to 
basically build our own e-bike and build our own software and build our own operations and to do this you know from australia in the us and the uk which is a pretty crazy kind of idea but they were thesis driven investors and they liked mm. you know they believed in the thesis and we thought that we matched it and they were happy to back us yeah I remember meeting you on the ferry and you were doing the initial pitch to me and I was like, <laughs> this is a really good, because I'd been at Uber at the time when Uber Eats was sort of expanding and they were looking for those delivery vehicles. And I was always like, e-bikes, man, this makes so much sense. And I remember meeting you and just going like, oh, this guy's like, now this is awesome. Got it, I didn't invest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you say now that you thought it was a good idea. I'm sure you thought it was a stupid idea. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, no. Actually, someone convinced me that it was a bad idea because those businesses end up being hardware and low margin. And it was like, oh, okay, yep, yep. One of the interesting data point. points is that the average price of an e-bike has been going up for like the last 10 years. And, and, and even yeah. with battery prices coming down, you know, the average spend is going up. And, and I think that it's kind of, you know, not some sort of commodity. This is an early stage technology. And in the same way that like car prices haven't been going down, the technology has been getting better and prices have been staying the same, even though it's like a, I don't know how many old technology now. And, you know, phones are similar. The, the price has been going up. When I look at e-bikes today, I, I kind of think of them as like the Nokia 3310 sort of yep. equivalent. We still need to add ABS brakes. We need to add so many kind of technologies to them that, you know, people are yearning for, but, you know, are currently not being made fit for purpose for bikes or, you know, maybe outside of customers' price expectations. And so I think actually the roadmap for technology in this space is going to be driving prices up over time rather than just kind of being this, this downward trend. And, and that's definitely mm-hmm. what we've seen. Yeah. Yeah. And very, very fair. You set it up, obviously you've gone, you've got your first seed investment in, in 2019, but like, thing that I was blown away with is like, you've just raised a $60 million round. You've really gone on to bigger and better things. So take me through that journey since when we did our catch up, I think you just raised your first, maybe it's your series A or your seed at that that I think we had potentially not announced, but were, or maybe we're at term sheet stage or something for our series A, which was, I think from memory, $9 million, 2020 is a long, long time ago now. And and and, and that, that was led by the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, which is Australia's like $10 billion clean tech investing fund. And then this year is really where things have started to accelerate. So we raised, I think it was a further $12 million led by Airtree, which is one of Australia's top VC funds. Mm-hmm. And then, and then yes, later in the year, we closed out, out and that was sort of, I guess, an in-between round. And this year, well, you know, recently, we, we just announced our Series B, which was a mixture of equity and asset-backed debt. And I think it's definitely put the business on a brand new trajectory, which, which is allowing us to invest a lot more heavily into you know, people and you know, especially in technology you know, and engineering, both on the hardware and the software front, because I think we've found product market fit with a relatively bootstrapped operation and bootstrapped kind of team spread pretty thin. And I think that now we're really seeing huge kind of demand expansion. And, and so we're really kind of investing now to future-proof that, to kind of deepen the technology that we've got to make it better and then to expand the product lineup to address different different markets. So yeah, it's definitely an exciting time for us and a very busy lead up to Christmas. Yeah, I imagine. So how big's the team? How many markets are you in at this point? We're about 300 people now and we're in Australia, the US, the UK, Germany, France, Spain, we just launched Continental Europe a month or two ago and pretty excited about that. We're definitely on rapid expansion globally and also you know, in Australia and building our engineering team. I think one thing that we've learned through COVID and having to grow during lockdown is that you know, we can do pretty well remotely. I think we, we also know the limits of what you can do remotely, but I think mm. it's given us access to 
global talent and made us much more comfortable to hire people in different parts of the world who, you know, as long as they're the best at what they do. And, and I think, you know, it's freed me a little bit to not just be trying to find people in Sydney. Yeah. So I think that that's been a really wonderful learning. We, we grew the business, you know, insanely you know, pre-pandemic. We were 90% of our revenue is in Australia. Today, 90% of our revenue is overseas. And that was done in an environment where, you know, we weren't traveling. And the traditional logic is, you know, the founder needs to go to the market to inject their DNA and to make sure things are working. And you need to be in the middle of your biggest market. And that's what the plan was, you know, in, in March, you know, 2020 to, yep. to, to go to New York, to go to London, for me, my co-founder, but but we couldn't. And so it's pretty impressive what, you know, our teams have managed to do, you know, without us physically being there. So I think that's been one of the benefits of being in one of the most strictly locked down countries in the world is, is that you just got to make do. Yeah, yeah, completely. And so I think, the other part as well, and I just want to cover this off before we kind of get into the rest of it is, you know, can you explain where e-bikes fit into the delivery landscape? So like why are e-bikes, you kind of mentioned like you were GM of Deliveroo and so you could see this happening with e-bikes and I certainly feel like I get this and I'm, I'm going to assume this, the audience is smart and we'll get it too, but I just I want to just cover it off. So like, what do you see in terms of data about why e-bikes are compelling for delivery? Is it the quicker, more earnings? I mean, how, how does that actually translate? It's a variety of things, and I think you know delivery is a very broad space. And within delivery, you've got food delivery, grocery delivery, parcel delivery, postal, a whole bunch of different sectors. And you know, Zumo is focused today predominantly food and grocery on demand. And what's unique about that is your you know your average package size is is not that heavy, and so you can use something more closely resembling a consumer bike, but that's not you know a consumer bike is not quite fit for purpose because I think you know what we see with our customers is that they could be doing up to 50,000 kilometers per year on the bikes. So you need super robust vehicles. They're riding at nighttime and in the rain, so safety really matters. They could be doing eight to 15 hours a day so of work, so they need really large batteries. So in many respects, this is not a standard bike. It's not going to do the job for them. At the same time, customers really want e-bikes for a variety of reasons. So one, you just don't need a driver's license. And so it's really hard to get someone when you're recruiting heavily who's got the specific motorbike or moped license. So that's a really big win. You can park on the footpath. You can ride in bike lanes in congested areas. Like we've got data that shows that our e-bikes are the fastest at delivery for, let's say, mm. you know, DoorDash in San Francisco or in New York. You know, Zumo bikes are you know the fastest vehicles in their in their fleet. And so you can achieve great customer outcomes. You can, you know, where couriers are making money per delivery, they can make more money. And at the same time, do good for the environment where, you know, stop using petrol motorbikes, petrol cars. And so it's really a win-win-win across the board. And so that's really why people are kind of coming to e-bikes. It's a regulatory class of vehicle that has a whole set suite of advantages relative to motorbikes or mopeds, again, separated from, from cars. So, you know, I think that there's different layers of persuasion that people need to go through. And, and I think that's because e-bikes historically have just been a regular bike plus some sort of motor that's powered by a battery. And yep. I think there's a, a mental shift required to realize that, you know, you can adapt this technology to be a commercial vehicle. And in that, and actually, if you take advantage of the full suite of what you're allowed to do under the, under the regulations, it's, it's a phenomenal solution. Yeah, awesome. So take me through the, when you talk about the fact that you've grown 90% offshore, where's the most growth that you've seen? We've been Anglophone business historically. So we launched in the US and the UK, I think as an Australian business, if you want to build a big business, you need to go overseas. And because 
you know, historically we were dealing with gig workers. We knew and understood the laws in, in the UK and, and the USA and understood the food delivery platforms. We understood, you know, gig workers and how they operated. And so we launched in those two markets. And, and that's where all that growth has come from between the UK and the US across a few cities initially. Although kind of that footprint pretty expanded pretty rapidly you know, especially in the US in terms of number of cities that we're operating in. I think right now, in terms of growth rate, you know, really, you know, continental Europe is is what we're quite excited about. Although kind of the numbers are not yet where the UK and the US is, you know, there's, there's no doubt. And you can definitely see this in the micromobility, you know, shared micromobility operators that France is, from a regulatory perspective, you know, very pro micromobility and Germany, mm-hmm. Netherlands, all, all these markets are, you know, because of their density and because of various regulations and, and culture, uh, very pro micro mobility. So I think, you know, fast forward in the next 12 months, probably rate of growth we're expecting to be to be high in, in Europe. Awesome. And the companies that you deal with, so oftentimes you like you're leasing directly to gig workers, but how does that work necessarily for them to find you, for example? So I guess the reason I'm asking this is I used to run this thing called the vehicle solutions business at Uber in Australia and New Zealand. And so it's like, hey, yes, just sign up to be an Uber driver. We give the option of like, there are these people who lease cars on short-term basis, rent cars on a short-term basis that are available if you'd like to just trial it. And, and that was sort of part of the sign-up flow. Is that is that how it works for you guys now with uh, all of these different uh, delivery companies or do you have to go in and recruit them individually? Yeah, maybe just to kind of step back before doing that, I think probably worth clarifying that, you know, one of the biggest changes in the business for us since we last spoke is the expansion of like also our enterprise business. And so where we started was gig workers, but a huge part of our operation now and of our revenue is is actually enterprise partnerships. And the way that we distinguish is, you know, where a logistics company engages its workers as contractors, that's mm-hmm. what we call our direct to career business, which is what you're talking about there. And then the other yeah. half of our business is where companies typically employ their workers. They, you know, just contract with us for, you know, X thousand vehicles and we provide it to, to their workers, but the, the person on the hook for the payments is ultimately the, the business. And so oh, there interesting. so there are okay. actually kind yeah. of two parts to our business now. And, and I guess we got into that after we had built our tech platform basically by the middle of 2020 we had our own bike we had our own operating model with operations and and servicing you know software and, and financing and you know it turns out that a gig worker what we were solving for for them was you know on-demand servicing really high quality of care reliable vehicles it turns out that you know if you're amazon you care about the same things mm-hmm. and so towards mm-hmm. the end of 2020 we started to experiment in that enterprise space and that's really kind of picked up for us as a segment as well and so they are similar but but different and, and they kind of have different go-to-markets, you know, and, and what we call we basically call them B2B and B2C in, in our internal parlance. Yep. And but you know, where B2C for us is you can think of these gig workers as being prosumers. They're not really consumers, although ultimately they are the ones on the hook for paying us. And so I think what's interesting we find is that, you know, we do have amazing partnerships with the likes of DoorDash and Deliveroo and Uber Eats, and they will kind of subsidize the vehicles oftentimes for their couriers. But ultimately, the decision sits with the courier. And so, you know, there is a bit of partnerships work, but there's also ultimately, you know, we do Instagram ads and we do kind of brand building. And, you know, ultimately, there is a consumer-ish marketing side of things. But the analogy would be, in the automotive world, a tradie going into a Ford dealership to buy, you know, a Ford you know, F-150 or Ford Ranger, as they're called here in Australia. And that is a commercial decision. They're aware of kind of the tax benefits they get. They are aware that, you know, 
it's not just about the cheapest thing, it's about the, the best the best thing for their business. And so, you know, Zumo is for couriers kind of like the Prius for Uber drivers. Once you start getting serious yes. about it, then you realize that, hey, you know, when you're doing five hours a week, sure, go get a bike from Kmart and, you know, go for it. But once you start doing 20 hours per week, you start to care about comfort, you start to care about safety, you start to care about, you know, range, you start to care about power, you notice the intricacies that differentiate, you know, a crappy bike from a bike that's helping me to make a living. And that's really the point at which people decide, well, I want something that's safe, I want something that's that's suitable, and where Zumo becomes a really attractive proposition. And when you say, you know, if you've got the B2B and the B2C part of the business, so that's really excited, by the way, that I hadn't, sorry, I hadn't caught that part as you're expanding. So when you're leasing, for example, thousands of vehicles to some of these platforms, are you directly doing it to a platform or are you doing it to subcontractors who then bring on contractors and then directly go to the Uber Eats and the DoorDashes themselves as a sort of guild or something like that? So there's actually both. So some companies do their deliveries via like subcontracting to logistics and you know businesses. And so yep. and the, the logistics business might have a contract with Amazon to do you know deliveries for them in a certain region, and you know they are the ones responsible for hiring the workers and for getting the vehicles. And so they mm-hmm. might be a customer of ours, but at the same time, you know Amazon itself might be interested in, in just kind of getting the vehicles, and, and they have some of the, some of their own in-house logistics. And so you might work directly with one of the companies themselves in their own procurement department. Yeah, part of the reason I asked that question is just because the gig worker legislation around how the future of work and the rights and responsibilities of all of these platforms has always been a sort of continually evolving space. So I can see that you guys are probably sitting in there and have an opportunity in some ways to be able to help both sides by de-risking some of this aspect of it. Yeah, I mean, DoorDash, for instance, is is experimenting with employing workers. We're able to support them through through that model because of kind of this B two B side of our business. But also, we're able to support on just the, the gig worker business by you know co collaborating on promotions to to get new couriers onto their platform who don't have a vehicle or don't know what vehicle they want and for whom you know, DoorDash has realized, heck, I can't tell you to get a vehicle, but I can definitely show you that this is you know if you're serious about delivery, this is where you should go. Mm, mm. I do wonder a little bit about how does the economics of that, if you're someone like DoorDash or Uber Eats, if you know that you can reliably get the cost of each delivery down on something like an e-bike, but it's only part of your delivery mix, you'd almost want to then start optimizing for that, knowing that like that's going to be the most economic. You want to obviously incentivize more people to go towards that. Horace and I had a podcast a little while back where we talked about the implications of trending towards zero marginal cost per kilometer that's enabled through micro, just because you've got a low cost of vehicle, low cost of actually fueling these vehicles and what that would enable, like what sort of stuff starts happening. And I can imagine for them, it just looks at it and you go, it's probably going to be that like someone driving around in a car you can't justify paying them that much more if there was something like an e-bike that's available as a delivery mechanism, right? Yeah, it's, it's that exact concept of, of unbundling. Uh, I think at the end of the day for delivery, like uh, the, the vehicle cost is not as much as the labor cost per delivery. And, you know, when you can amortize the vehicle over, over a longer period of time. But if you can show that the vehicle enables more efficiency and brings down the labor cost through various you know things like ultimately it's, it's, it's fast, you can do more deliveries per yeah. hour then that's really where the power in, in that process lies. And obviously, it's more obvious in on-demand situations than in you know, huge batch situations. Like, like what I mean by that is if you're delivering 500 kilos of load in a big truck, it's harder to make the argument for transitioning to a bike which just can't carry 500 kilos of load. Whereas I think in the on-demand space, 
it's a really obvious argument why it doesn't make sense to use you know, a car around yeah. New York City to do deliveries of, of burgers compared to compared to bikes. Yeah, yeah, completely. Cool. So one of the things that like I, I've seen since we talked last time, I think you're just or you're just in the process of starting to build your own bike. And so clearly you've been on that journey now for 18 months or, or two years or so. Take me through that. Like what 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 have you learned? What version of the bike are you on now? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the cool things about the electric bike space is that I think it is sitting halfway between automotive and consumer electronics. It's about as complex and pricey as a laptop or mobile phone, but fundamentally, you know, it's it safety matters. It's it's a mobility tool, and so it's you know the purpose of the of the product is is closer to to what a car is, and so I think it's a really exciting space to work in because you know as I mentioned. Electric bikes have, you know, for, for most of the time just been, you know, a, a bolt-on to a regular bike and people struggle to make the logic work. It's like, well, why would a road biker add electricity to their bike? They'd want to use it for exercise. You know, and so now people are starting to realize, well, it's useful for commuting. I don't, people don't want to sweat, you know, on the way to work. So, you know, you've got cool companies like FanMoof and Cowboy and the like that are doing work in that space. But I think, you know, the other really obvious area where you know, electric bikes make sense is, is in this delivery space. You know, so, so we're kind of building a new product class, which is pretty interesting because, you know, most bike level components aren't made for the sort of really heavy duty usage that, you know, aiming to put our vehicles through. At the same time, once you start getting into like automotive worlds, like motorbike technology and, and that kind of thing, it's just highly bureaucratic. You know, it, it's overspec versus what we really need. And so we're in this cool space where we're trying to really bring two industries together and, and, and be quite creative in, in a world where you can do that. You can iterate on, on the vehicles relatively quickly. So it's like actually every you know, monthly production run, you know, we've been improving on the vehicle, whether it's kind of changing the strength of a nut here or, you know, just the subcomponent of the aluminium of a crank there as we kind of learn as we go. And, and I think that's one of the cool things that you can do in, in the bike space, which you can't in, say, the automotive space because it's mm. much more rigid in the way that you have to do homologation and, and that sort of thing. And so that's really allowed us to iterate on the Zumo Zero and improve. And I guess every Zumo Zero that, that we've pu pushed out has had some sort of improvement, or at least as it comes in for repair, you know, we've upgraded the spare parts and, and, and are able to improve it there. So, you know, there's various kind of Zumo Zero point, you know, one, two, three, four. Obviously, we've just announced the Zumo One which is, I guess, a more fundamental build. And, and, you know, the Zumo Zero, we were very focused on speed to market. We knew that the vehicles out there weren't fit for, for purpose. Like, I wouldn't have built a bike if I didn't have to. It's a hard, expensive and tiring kind of thing to do. And, you know, it's hard enough building a software company or a servicing company or a financing company. But, you know, we're doing all of that and hardware. So it's quite a, an expansive endeavor. And the Zumo One is kind of the product of everything that we wanted to do really in the Zumo Zero, but because of the constraints we set ourselves around you know, development budget and speed to market, you know, we, we didn't get to do. And I think that's pretty exciting because the Zumo Zero is really like the best vehicle in the market for you know, this last mile delivery space. But you know, we can see all the ways that it can be better and, and that's kind of what, what, what's happening in the Zumo One. And so you know, things there like you know, front and rear suspension built in, the ability to go comfortably to the 45 mile per hour speed, wrap around lights so that you know with indicator lights th things that like when you go I, I, I ride a motorbike and as well as a, an e-bike and when I go to my e-bike things annoy me like you know why don't I have a mirror you know why can't I yep. indicate and so just bringing some of those safety features from the automotive world or from the motorbike world into the into the e-bike world while managing to keep a lot of the benefits of, of it being an e-bike 
Yeah. I also noticed well, because you guys went quite early on to belt drives. The one will have a belt drive. Actually, the zero runs on a chain and that's kind of linked to the gearing system that we're using yeah. kind, of, kind of when you're on a belt because you can't easily unloosen it at a, at a random point. You have to kind of change your your mechanism. You internal hubs and stuff, yeah. Yeah, so, so, so we do use an internal hub, but there's not an easy kind of on-off system for, for a belt drive. So, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that, you know, we've done initially there was like, we didn't have the numbers and I think we're pretty data driven in terms of, you know, is it worth it to shift from a $1 chain? And, you know, we don't have say a derailleur and, and, and external gearing system on, on the Zumo Zero, which keeps it fairly low maintenance. So is it worth going from that to like a $50 carbon belt drive? And mm. we just wanted, we wanted to make sure that we gather enough information about like the, and realistically like putting on and off, you know, a, a new chain is like not that hard, you know, doesn't add that much labor cost when it happens. And so, you know, it's really something that you want to collect a lot of data on and show over, say, a three-year lifespan that it stacks up. And I think we got comfortable that, you know, it would at least break even. But it, it's, it's you know, I think we're fairly careful. And I think that's part of the DNA of, you know, not just adding cost for the sake of it and, and not just doing things that seem like a good idea. You know, we're really highly focused on total cost of ownership and, and, and you know, really do the maths around what are the labor costs, what are the frequency of changes, what's the cost, you know, per part, to justify kind of the features that we're putting into the vehicles. Yeah. And with the Zumo, so obviously, I think I remember when we talked to you last time, it was, you've got a relatively, um, you've got a bike that's relatively standard. You've just tweaked a couple of pieces because you know that you're going to have it like that custom use. The Zumo one, the sense that I get from it, uh, having, having looked at it, is just that it's, you've designed this from the ground up. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, some of the key things that we did with the Zuma Zero was, and where a lot of customization has been around, like, you know, fully integrated IoT, because, you know, we could see with the third-party vehicles that we're using, like, when we were tacking on, you know, IoT solutions, like, they were just getting smashed off by thieves. A lot of the reason that you add IoT is to be able to recover bikes, and mm -hmm. when you just have an externally placed feature, the thieves just kind of knock them off. It ruins the utility. Also, you kind of want it integrated from an early stage so you can properly extract the information from the internal systems like the motor controller so you can pull the mileage, so you can control the motor, you can control the battery fully remotely. And so that was kind of an area of focus and kind of electronics integrations is I think where we do see a lot of the value being added and less so in necessarily the, the mechanical components. Having said that, like the design is really important to make sure that it's you know fit for purpose. Things like having an integrated rack means that like the bike can actually carry a load. Whereas, you know, again, a consumer bike, you can tack on some sort of rack, but you know, it falls apart and it's it's not it's not kind of safe or it's you know hard to put a pizza box on top or a box that holds the pizza box on the rear rack. Mm. So you know, designing to be fit for purpose is important on in terms of the mechanical components, but you know, I think thinking through all the implications of that, that mileage and utility is in that design is where you start to get the customer insights coming out as, as, as a really useful product. Yeah. I see that you've obviously, you've stuck with two wheelers and I, I am super curious as to, do you see three wheelers or, and or like heavier capacity bikes coming through? That's the, th the part that I've been kind of excited to see is that there's a whole space of electric heavier micromobility that I think is actually going to be quite powerful. And so some of it is things like 
the Nimbus or the Akimoto Deliberator, which are like obviously very large in terms of the capacity they're going to be able to take on and, but have a bunch of problems as well, which is like, you know, they don't have the parking benefits and the speed and the licensing arbitrage that you would have, for example, with an e-bike. But it strikes me that like a three-wheeled e-bike or a larger one, you can provide the weather protection, you can do kind of basic stuff like that. Is that something that you're looking at? Yeah, we're definitely kind of exploring the market there. And I think, you know, what we have built now is like a, a pretty useful platform. So, you know, if you think about what, what Zumo now has is like a sales teams, a software layer for the management of, of fleets of vehicles, a servicing network, and the ability to offer financing on vehicles. And so, you know, one thing that we're exploring is like, well, we started off using third-party vehicles. So, you know, if there is a popular three-wheeled or four-wheeled e-bike solution for the logistics space, and it's probably not going to be in, in on-demand food and grocery delivery in our core customer segment. But, you know, I think as we explore other customer segments, there is room for us to, to look at adding other vehicles into our fleet and offering, you know, that as a service as well. And so I definitely watch really closely and there's some really cool three-wheeled and even four-wheeled e-bikes. I think four-wheeled e-bikes are not legal from my understanding like in the US or Australia, but in Europe yeah. you know, there's definitely a lot of, a lot of interesting yeah. Yeah, quadricycle solutions. But I think it doesn't come as naturally to me to exactly understand the use case because I know that it doesn't really suit the on-demand space that well. And then now you're talking about more about postal services and they're much more institutional and you know, someone like, you know, coming like UPS, they have huge like network engineering teams and, you know, you want to add a pilot of you know, a new vehicle type, you know, it's, it's one thing to kind of have a couple of bikes with them. It's another thing for them to kind of make the decision that they're going to change the way they do deliveries in, in a meaningful way to mm. have a huge fleet of these things. So I think for us, we're in learning kind of space and we want to understand, you know, what are the best vehicles out there? How do they really suit customer needs and what's the market for them? But it's definitely an area that, that we're watching pretty closely and we'll develop, I guess, hopefully stronger points of view on them in the coming months, really, as, as we ramp up our product team on, on the hardware side and, and our customer research capability and, and explore really kind of adjacent customer groups outside of you know our, our core set today. That's fascinating. I think there's a space that I can see getting really interesting is that demand for on-demand, like growth, not for food necessarily, because you have that obviously very tight timeframes for food to be able to a little bit hot, but it's the grocery stuff where you can start batching things out. And I'm willing to pay for a 45 minute delivery rather than a 15 minute delivery. And, you know, obviously yeah. a lot cheaper and, and you can just batch whole stuff, a whole bunch of stuff that comes out as long as the labor costs stack up. And Yeah. Um, and I think part of, the, part of the kind of query is, is the right answer there, like, a cargo bike? Is it a Zumo bike with a trailer? Is it a tricycle? Is it a quadricycle? You know, I think that's where the cool thing, again, I think coming back to, to this space is that, you know, electrification of micro mobility has allowed a lot of creativity, right? And so you, there's all sorts of weird and wonderful vehicles out there like the Akimoto's mm. and the quadricycles and the tricycles. And, you know, I think that outside of, say, food and grocery delivery, there hasn't been like a runaway, you know, success that, that I've seen in, in, in that space. And, and I think that the market is still kind of, trying to, to find the right fit because there's just all sorts of complexities in terms of managing load. So, so how many packages, the volume of packages, the weight of the packages, the storage of the vehicle, how you interact between kind of the courier, putting the, the packages into the vehicle. Like, do you need a container that rolls on, rolls mm -hmm. off or, or do you climb into the vehicle? So, so I think that there is still a lot of work to be done to kind of actually hit the right product market fit in that space. And I guess it's it's also a bit fragmented. Different delivery companies do it do it in different ways. But I'm with you that there will be a huge transformation in last mile logistics at that heavier end onto 
you know, smaller form factor electric bikes and, you know, basically, you know, those that pedal driven and has the right to go on the footpath. But there's actually just so many different ways that they could pan out that it, we're, we're kind of actively exploring and trying to wrap our heads around as well. Yeah, cool. Hey, so last time we talked, you said to me that you had no interest in going after consumers and that you'd want to focus predominantly on just addressing couriers. And yet almost all the businesses I've seen in the leasing space have gone consumer facing. And I'm so curious, has anyone else made the jump across to B2B? Do you consider yourself, like, do you see that you have competition? Do you think that you've got a little competition anywhere? So I think that Zoom is an interesting space where we started with like leasing to gig workers. And, you know, we, we ran kind of pilots of, of what about kind of subscription services for consumers, kind of similar to your swap feeds model. And we mm. kind of ran tests on the enterprise side. And we found that really the hardware that we developed was ideal in that kind of more enterprise sales side. And we've really leaned into that. And it's why we're really interested in the various commercial vehicles, which we think kind of that, that platform is well built to service. I mean, when I think about like the full extent of what Zumo could be, I definitely think there's space for us to be a kind of consumer brand as well. And I think that when I look at the automotive space, you have companies like, you know, Land Rover or Jeep that started as military vehicles and then, you know, developed mm-hmm. a, a consumer brand. You know, even have Rivian kind of started with this kind of, you know, Amazon truck and, and now is building, yeah. you know, consumer pickup trucks. So I, I think that if Zumo were to get into the consumer space, it would be kind of focusing on some niches that make a lot of sense, whether it is kind of like consumer subscription, but with like a lighter vehicle than what we've got today, or maybe cargo bikes or, you know, for consumers. So, so more like that turn GSD type yeah. thing yeah. where, you know, the brand that we're building and the capability that we're building around utility and practicality and affordability, accessibility, service on demand, all those sorts of things are going to be, are going to be most valuable rather than necessarily you know, going headfirst into a commuter bike and, you know, going, you know, head to head with FanMove. Yeah. But I think that there's, yeah, so, so I think there's a lot of scope for us to explore different areas. Having said that, I think that the commercial space is where we have a true right to win across, you know, several categories and definitely where, where the focus will be for us in, in 2022. Yeah. Good point around the turn GSD. I mean, the cargo bike space is one that's just like, I cannot get my head around why they are so preposterously expensive. Like they're just, it's so, it's crazy to me that like the average price for a cargo bike is like eight to $12,000 New Zealand, which is what, like four to four to $8,000 US. It's just, it doesn't strike me that there's anything particularly material about it, about why they're, why they're so much more expensive. I just, yeah. yeah. And I think so, what, what's wild is that you have kind of like historically these companies like selling the fact that they use a Shimano or a Bosch and that's kind of, they haven't built their own real, real strong brand equity is, is, is my view. And I think that, you know, what companies like ourselves and Fenmoof and Cowboy and, and Rad are doing is like, you know, putting the bike brand front and center and realizing that I can, get, you know, a Japanese motor, it's, you know, again, very similar to kind of the, the automotive. I don't have to get pay for the, you know, the German made motor to get the reliability and performance and actually offer a more, a more affordable kind of solution. So I think, so right now, as, as I think a lot of the time, those vehicles are almost kind of status statements. You know, I'm, you know, able to, to kind of be more efficient, obviously, but spend a fortune on an e-bike and, you know, it makes sense replacing a car. But it, it really doesn't need to be yeah ten thousand dollars. I, I don't think. Yeah, 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 completely. I'd love to see a leasing option available for that, just because I think that that's the, one of those things that hasn't been nailed. Cool. Well, look, you've obviously raised a few rounds of funding since we last talked. I'm, I'm kind of curious, you know, like how's that fundraising journey been for you? The thing that kind of blew me away was, you know, I think we went through that big boom and bust 
with all the shared micromobility stuff. And then obviously it's just like absolutely crazy with obviously with you guys and, and, and continuing on. And yet you've built, I think, a more solid business around that. You're not so, quite so uh, hype driven as, as the other areas. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we made a conscious decision early on to not follow the hype and, and to kind of focus on, on an area that was, we think, kind of more rational, which is this this commercial and, and B2B space. And, you know, it's not going to grow as quickly as consumer and it's it's going to be you know a bit different. But it's... It gave us time to really focus on the economics, understanding the customers, building solid fundamentals, and we're kind of starting to reap the rewards. And, and you know, we're really seeing growth. You know, we've continued to kind of grow around you know four x a year for three years, and next year I think we'll be closer to five x. And and so it's pretty pretty exciting to see that acceleration in, in growth in the business. And that's I think meant that we haven't raised as much money in the early days as, as everyone else, because I guess there was already a bet on micromobility mm-hmm. and I guess uncertainty around it. And I think people got more confident over the last couple of years that, you know, this this does make sense. This is going to be something that, that doesn't you know go away. And I think now with a lot of the you know eyes being opened to that basic fundamental concept, it's like, well, yeah, the commercial side does does make a lot of sense. And so I think that's helped our fundraising kind of journey. And, you know, we basically just done the things that we said we would do. I think in the early stages, it was kind of a pretty risky proposition to, to invest in Zumo and, and kind of, you know, Aussie team trying to do things across the world. Mm. And, and I think that we've, you know, and build their own vehicle and, and deal with all of that. And I think that we've just managed to work really hard and hit the goals that we set for ourselves. And I think that's what's making, I think, I mean, look, obviously I'm going to say that's what makes capital raising easier. I think, I think the reality is the markets are really good right now in the private mm. markets for, for capital raising. And, and if you have a good business, it's, it's a lot easier to raise today than it was, you know, t- two years ago. Yeah. Well, you're riding the wave. So, you know, you're a great man riding the wave. Just before we finish up, I mean, the one thing that I've been really impressed with was your capacity to raise on that debt funding. Because it just it struck me at the time that like nobody else was really doing it. And it seemed to me that you had a real strategic advantage relative to other companies in the space. And even now, it's still relatively uncommon that you'll see micromobility companies raising debt funding in order to be able to fund on assets. You know, the only other company that I can really think of that's done it well, I think, has been Revel. You know, they're doing it because they own the vehicle either they lease them or they've got the, the, the they've got mopeds and there's a whole kind of like funding mechanism available for mopeds and, and that i'm kind of curious like do you think that that's still uncommon in the industry am i missing something you know what what would need to happen for, for it to become more common i mean i think that i am seeing more you know mention of debt being part of capital raises so for, for i think just today i, I read about void raising 100 million dollars and there's a debt component to that. I think what I've learned is like not all debt is equal, and and we've made mm. a a transition over time from venture debt, say initially, to asset backed debt today. And I think really asset backed debt is is where you want to be because the lender has confidence ultimately in the value of the asset and treats that as security rather than treating effectively your equity investors as kind of the security. So you know, Tier raised I think sixty million dollars of debt. But I think relative to the amount of equity that they've raised, it's I, I don't know if it's you know asset backed or or if it's really just kind of sitting alongside the equity and and the debt investors there are just saying well at the end of the day they have like SoftBank as a backer and and you know I'm confident mm-hmm. that you know they'll, they'll get a bailout and I won't go to a zero because of that. Whereas I think that what is unique about Zumo is that we've raised kind of asset backed debt at a relatively early stage, mm-hmm. and I think that yeah, well, shows, way earlier than anybody else. You know, yeah, and so I th- thing, yeah, and I think that shows kind of the strength of the unit economics in our business and also the effort that we put into doing things like proving the resale value of the bikes because you know the reason you can more easily fund mopeds is that there's like 
a residual value curve that everybody's aware of. With e-bikes as a new asset class, people don't know if everything went to crap, you know, could I just sell, you know, 10,000 bikes and, you know, how much money would I get for them? And there is still an open question around that because the resale market for e-bikes is not as transparent and, and as liquid. So we have kind of sold pretty large number, actually, I think between 500 to 1,000 of our used bikes over the last few years to kind of show mm. that curve of what the resale value is on, on the vehicle and, and give lenders confidence that, you know, there is kind of residual value in the asset at different points in time. Added to that, because we don't just sell a bike and anywhere online, kind of rad power style, we only at this point offer, you know, sell vehicles where we have servicing. And because they're IoT connected, you know, we can offer genuine security over the vehicle, which is again, like, if everything goes wrong, like we can go out and recover the vehicles and bring them in and actually sell them. So it's a mixture of these different things we've kind of put effort to in, effort into in, in our operations and mixing hardware, software and, and operations together. Mm, mm. That That's enabled us to, to, to do that, I think. And yeah, it's definitely an advantage because, you know, fun- fundamentally these assets, you know, if they genuinely make money, you don't want to be using equity to, to fund them. You, you do want to be using a, a lower cost of capital you know, source. Yeah, totally. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. Dude, uh, this is so, it's so good to chat to you and just to hear the updates. Uh, I've been really, really impressed just watching your journey from afar. And I actually had Airtree give me a call uh, when they were looking at you around and were like, you know, should, should we back these guys? And I was like, yeah, no, I mean, they're, they're like some of the smartest operators I've seen in the space. So I was really happy to see that they went oh, on. That's awesome. You know, hats off to you guys for trying to build this from the antipodes. I, I know that that can be a tricky thing sometimes to be doing that. And, and you guys have really nailed it. So looking forward to seeing you at a future micromobility event that we have coming up at some point, hopefully. Thank you. Hopefully they let you out of New Zealand sometime soon. <laughs> yeah, indeed. All right. Hey, thanks very much. All right. Thanks so much for the time, Oliver. No worries.